0: to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
1: Welcome to episode 93 of Tax Talks. This is Heidel Robson. And thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. More than a year ago, in September 2017, the House of Representatives passed the new safe harbour legislation for directors when trading while insolvent. Ben Sewell of Sewell & Kettle in Sydney does a lot of work around insolvency, so perfect to ask for more details. My first question to Ben is, is this new law a big change from what we had before? Here's Ben.
0: This is the most significant corporate insolvency reform in Australia since the introduction of voluntary administration in 1993. And what it is about is a direction of policy to encourage informal restructures, even whilst a company is insolvent at the time of the restructure. Whereas before, the law in place in Australia was that it was illegal and a breach of director's duties for a company that is insolvent to attempt an informal restructure process. The change is potentially huge. And it also changes the framework of discussions when a company is approaching insolvency. Because before this law was implemented, and this law was implemented in September last year, if a company was insolvent and they went to see their accountant, their accountant would point them on to an insolvency practitioner who would say to them, look, if you're trading whilst you're insolvent, you need to appoint a voluntary administrator or cease to trade today. And so this creates another path, which is that the directors take steps to take advantage of this safe harbour law and work on an informal process. That means an internal process to try and turn around the business or at least maximise the value that's going to be created if the company does eventually go into liquidation.
1: So it it very much changes the narrative for a company that's going through a rough patch. Before there was a great focus on the risk that the director runs if they continue trading. Now the focus is more on let's get the company turned around and
0: try to survive. So the current law regarding insolvent trading in Australia stays the same. So that means that if you're a director of a company, You have a personal obligation, so a director's duty under Section 588G of the Corporations Act. And the obligation is that whilst you're a director, your company cannot incur debts whilst it is insolvent. And insolvency doesn't just mean they're going through a rough patch. It doesn't just mean they've got temporary illiquidity. It means there is an endemic shortage of working capital. They're just unable to pay their debts. If a company is at that point, the law as it stands before this reform, was that the directors either had to cease to trade, okay, so they had to stop incurring debts, or they had to appoint a voluntary administrator as a protection.
1: And if they didn't do that?
0: Well, then they'd be at risk of being sued down the track if the company goes into liquidation. So the prohibition, the sting in the tail of it, is that if a director is in breach of the prohibition, so that means if they say, look, let's just press on, let's just continue to trade and try and work out of this or continue to to work on an informal workout and continue to incur debts, if the company eventually goes into liquidation, then the liquidator has a cause of action against them for breach. And what the liquidator can do is they can claw back those debts that were incurred from the directors themselves.
1: Yes, and it means the director becomes liable with their personal assets. Yes, it does. Why doesn't this 588G not stop phoenixing? Okay. Because the phoenix company is
0: incurring debts that it isn't going to pay. Well, that is an interesting observation. And one of the problems with the enforcement of insolvent trading in Australia is there's very few cases on it. Okay. So there was one empirical report that I read that found that between the 1960s and 2004, there was only 64 judgments on this action. What that means is that it isn't enforced very much. Okay. So the problem with taking action in the phoenix activity space is one you may have uh, directors that are made of straw so there's no so the liquidator either there's fake directors or directors that don't have the assets to pay out the claim or the liquidator doesn't have the books and records to be able to reconstruct the accounts so it becomes problematic and it's a very difficult course of action because the liquidator needs to prove the company's insolvent at a certain point in time they need to prove debts were incurred at a certain point in time the directors have a defense so it's not easy and it's, it's a big task to be undertaken. And the empirical evidence is that liquidators don't enforce this very much in Australia. As I said, something like 63 cases over a 40-year period. And it's so poorly enforced that I heard a comment at a conference from a keynote speaker that in Australia there's a greater chance of being bitten by a shark on George Street than being sued for insolvent trading.
1: Which really surprises me because everybody has heard the word insolvent trading. Everybody's afraid of being caught insolvent trading and in fact, it doesn't seem to actually, nobody seems to get punished for it.
0: That's true, but that also could be because most people follow the law because it is the law. So most people don't break the law just because they're uh, their law abiding. And so just having the law in place has persuasive effect on its own because most people want to follow the law. The other thing is the prohibition applies to big com- companies and small companies. This reform is focused on the directors of large enterprises. Why? Because if you're an independent director and you don't have any skin in the game, you don't own the company itself, you're on an ASX board, there is no incentive for you to take any risk. And so the policymakers, their view is that this prohibition has perhaps caused some companies to go into administration before they should have or at least before an informal restructure or an informal turnaround process was implemented because independent directors or big companies don't want to take any risk.
1: Going back a few decades, the airline NSAT, do you think they are an example of this, that professional directors push the company too quickly into liquidation because they were afraid of being caught in solvent trading?
0: It could be. Look, one thing is that Corporations Act applies to all companies big and small. So I think it is a bit crazy from a policy point of view to have the same law of voluntary administration that applies to ANSET as does to apply to the voluntary administration of a fish and chip shop down, down the road, okay? because the companies and their boards act in completely different ways. okay? The ANSET example, from what I understand, is the biggest administration that has been undertaken in Australia. Ansett at the time was owned by Air New Zealand, who didn't want to tip in any more money. so. I'm not sure whether it was the dynamic of the independent directors not wanting to take risk, but I think the point is this, is that if the ANSET directors, at the time they appointed a voluntary administrator, at least had the option of an informal workout and to know that whilst they were going through this process, they were protected and they wouldn't be sued for solvent trading, sorry, maybe the outcome wouldn't have been the same because perhaps they could have sought funds or they could have sought a loan or they could have sold shares or they could have done something and looked outside of Air New Zealand who, from what I understand, the New Zealand government told them they wouldn't advance funds. I think it could have had an effect and you would think that if the directors were protected, then they could have continued to trade and looked at other options. The first thing about this space that we're talk, talking about is there's very little empirical research. So I can't say to you, hey, you know, I can point to an empirical report where researchers have looked into the behaviour of directors of small to medium sized enterprises in Australia. What I can tell you is, I can tell you anecdotally and I can tell you from my own experience, the directors of SMEs act in a totally different way to independent professional directors because they've got everything on the line. They've, they've got the house on the line. The business is their own creation and they've got an incentive to take a lot of risk. So there is a strong incentive for them to double down on the risk because if they look at it from the perspective that they've already exhausted their own funds, then the only thing they can dip into is the credit creditor funds, okay? And so that may well be an option that they take. What I can tell you is that this reform is specifically aimed at professional directors of big enterprises, but it also covers directors of S- SMEs. Now, when we start to get into this law, we're going to find that there's some problems with SMEs trying to to use it. And one of the problems that directors of SMEs have is they don't have good professional advice necessarily when they're in this type of situation. So there is some complexity that perhaps they can't adapt to. The specific reform itself. So what it is is a carve-out, okay? So what a carve-out means is it's not a defence. So if you're a director, you don't have a defence, you you have a carve-out. So you can take advantage of this law without a liquidator having a cause of action against you. So what the carve-out is is a new section under Section 588G of the Corporations Act. And what that section basically provides is that a director doesn't have a duty to prevent insolvent trading if they start to develop a cause of action that is reasonably likely to lead to a better outcome for the company and – Any debt incurred is in connection with that course of action. To summarise it without getting into the detail too much, there needs to be a plan put in place and the plan has got to have a persuasive basis for improving the prospects of the company going forward and that's compared to a liquidation. So if you have a liquidation, you have a file sale of all the assets or you have a distillation of the value of the company at a certain date, if the director can put in place a plan to improve that then they can take advantage of the safe harbor so what they need to do is they need to obviously get up to date on the financial position of the company they need to keep books and records and develop a written plan and a minute that plan so that there's a start date and so that it can be tracked in terms of the strategic approach that they take there's no case law on this okay so there's no case that's been decided on this law it's brand new law it's september 2017 so There's no case law on it, and the test is a judgment call about whatever the plan there is is reasonably likely to lead to a better outcome for the company than a liquidation. So it really depends on the company itself. It depends on the type of assets they've got, the type of customers, type of contracts, and the creativity and integrity of the professional biases that they've got because the better the quality of of the plan, the better the protection that they'll have.
1: Do you think this new... Will, will make it easier to Phoenix, to, to keep a Phoenix activity longer and not to have to change companies as often?
0: Well, I would say no, and the reason is is because under the new law they've developed, sorry, there is a specific requirement that any company that takes advantage of the safe harbour must pay all their employee entitlements by the time they fall due and must file all their tax returns. So to be able to Phoenix the company it would be a problem because you'd have to file your tax returns, you'd have to pay all your employee entitlements.
1: It's part of a phoenix negativity usually that you don't file tax returns.
0: Yeah, or you would file them late or you would not pay your employee obligations. So there is those two protections in place.
1: I was surprised that it said you just have to file your tax returns on time, that it didn't say you have to pay your tax liabilities on time.
0: If we start from the assumption that the ATO is generally the biggest creditor in any liquidation, If you required all taxes to be paid in full, then you would, I think, be stopping most informal turnarounds from being undertaken. Yes,
1: because most struggling companies don't have the cash to pay their tax liabilities.
0: The first thing a company would do if they had cash flow problems is stop paying their taxes, because if they stop paying their suppliers or their employees, then they wouldn't be able to trade
1: what's the difference between a rescue versus a formal appointment scenario
0: formal appointment scenario would be the appointment of a liquidator or an administrator so an independent registered liquidator would step in and would take over the control of the company and follow the process under the corporations act for either voluntary administration or the liquidation
1: so that's what has been held until now
0: yes that's the formal process the informal process the first thing is there's a new type of restructuring advisor that can be engaged, so you can engage a lawyer or you can engage an accountant to advise you and and that's positively looked at under this new law. You have a requirement to start to implement a plan, so that means you, you you actually need to sit down and think about financial position of the company and work out a strategic direction. And so it's informal. so that means you don't tell anyone about it, you don't tell your suppliers, you don't need to tell your employees. If you're on the ASX, you don't need to comply with continuous obligation requirements regarding it. You don't need need, need to disclose it to the ASX. And you work on a plan to turn around the business or at least put it in a better position that would be in a liquidation scenario. This new law is really
1: bad for liquidators because before every struggling company had to go and see a liquidator to avoid insolvent trading, whereas now somebody can turn to an accountant or a lawyer. So it's good for accountants and lawyers and it's bad for liquidators, isn't
0: it? It could be. Look, it could result in the decimation of the insolvency profession in Australia because I don't have anything I can point to. I can't see, look at this policy paper or look at this statement. But if you go to the Senate inquiries that have taken place into insolvency industry and you read the transcripts and you look at what the politicians are saying, there's a very strong perception that Liquidators in Australia have overcharged and have gouged. And so I think that you could positively say that there is no political capital the insolvency profession has in this space anymore. And that the government has implemented a reform which no single professional body supports. The Law Society doesn't support it. A reader doesn't support it.
1: Oh, really? Um, Why doesn't the Law Society support it? It means more business for lawyers.
0: Well, one thing is, is that the new restructuring advisor reform that's been put forward is not required. Okay, so that means that if you undertake this process, you don't need to engage a professional advisor. Uh, The genesis of this reform was through a Productivity Commission report in 2015. And what the report recommended was that a registered restructuring advisor be branded. For the last few years, the battle that's been going on has been whether that registered restructuring advisor is a lawyer or insolvency practitioner or just an IP or, or what their role is.
1: What is an IP?
0: Insolvency pra- practitioner, okay. so a registered liquidator. So that's been the policy, our battle. What's actually been implemented as, as law is that there's no registration requirements for any advisor that's involved. I see. you you don't even need to have a lawyer or an accountant necessarily in this process.
1: I see. So the accountants, the lawyers, the IPs were all fighting over who should be the registered, qualified...
0: Restructuring advisor. Restructuring
1: advisor. And And they were taken
0: by a surprise completely. And so then therefore the
1: government said, okay, so we want to completely step away from it and anybody can basically advise.
0: Anybody who's appropriately qualified so could be a consultant, they could be a lawyer, they could be an accountant, there is no registration requirements.
1: And the Law Society doesn't like that?
0: Well, the Law Society was arguing that lawyers should be restructuring advisors, should be able to re- register and provide this advice. Um, but look, I think what the takeaway you should have from this is this is a far more open and laissez-faire reform than what the industry expected. anticipated would be.
1: And do you like it? Because to me it sounds good that the struggling business decide who should help them out of this rather than forcing them to go to a registered lawyer.
0: First thing I, first issue I've got is this is if you don't understand the problem, you can't reform it. Now, there is no empirical research out there that helps us to understand how in Australia a struggling enterprise deals with its problem. So we just don't know. Do they see their accountant? Do they see a lawyer? How do they deal with the problem? So I think that's the first issue. And if there is a risk that if you have a com- company that's approaching a point of no return, if they're consulting the wrong advisor, then you're really compounding the problem. And read a great book which basically looked at the medical industry. And what its conclusion was is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, if you went to see a doctor, you would get worse before our penicillin. So... If the historical analysis of the medical profession is is that for hundreds of years through uh, the Middle Ages and before that, if you went to see a doctor, you would get worse rather than get better. How do we know that doesn't occur when a company goes to see a lawyer or an accountant uh, currently? We don't know. Now, I'm not saying that's not the case because it depends on the individual skill of the advisor. But I would start from the beginning and I would start from looking at what people actually do and the Honest answer is we do not know. But you would say that the better the qualifications and the experience of the advisor, the the better the outcome.
1: One of the arguments for this change was to change the culture in Australia. Do you think it would achieve that?
0: The National Science and Innovation agenda is the overarching policy behind this reform. And one of the subsets of the reform is... Creating a rescue culture in Australia. So changing the culture. Now look, I'd say I'm one one of the people that are, they're looking to change the culture of because I'm I am in the industry as well. So a rescue culture is an objective, and that is trying to reduce the stigma associated with formal insolvency in Australia. Okay, so that's the objective. And it's an interesting one because what that means is you're actually looking to unwind hardwired. Expectations in Australia that if you go into administration, that's not good and that you should avoid trading with someone who has gone into administration or you should be suspicious of them. So I don't know whether that's going to be a success, but at least there's the first step that's been undertaken to try and rebalance and try and rescue culture in Australia. But to have that type of rescue culture in Australia, I think you need to have more transparency in the process and you need to have confidence that if you trade with a client or you lend money to someone, then they're going to play by the rules. You can understand the risk you take. So I think we're still stuck in that process of the insolvency law and the insolvency regime being worked on more, being improved. Do you see this
1: rescue culture in America this Chapter 11?
0: Chapter 11 is completely different to Australia. Chapter 11 in America is where the directors remain in control of the company whilst it is going through a restructure process.
1: But this new harbour rule now also puts the directors into control?
0: Yes, yes it does. I think it's one step towards that regime.
1: I see. So you think the chapter eleven is very different?
0: I think it's just so different that it isn't comparable. So that means that it's very different in Australia because it's not court-based. So in America, you go to court to get Chapter 11 protection. So that means you need lawyers, you need to start a case. Whereas in Australia, there's been a very strong uh, policy directive that we try and take the courts out of it as much as we can. And it's driven by insolvency practitioners who are accountants rather than our lawyers. I don't think that is something we should work towards because we've got our own approach in Australia and that the integrity of the system that we have is something that we should work on. But Promoting a, a rescue culture so that people don't immediately appoint a voluntary administrator and actually required to, if they want to take advantage of the safe harbor, seriously look at the business itself and make important decisions and actually get real-time information about the financial position of the company and think through our solutions. I think it's terrific.
1: You are glad we don't have Chapter 11, but the new roots?
0: The disquiet I, I have is that is that, yes, I think we should... If, if we wanna get better results, we won't get it through encouraging voluntary administration. So when I first became a lawyer, the empirical reports that I read um, indicated that the returns were something like 24 cents in the dollar for unsecureds in a administration, okay? So you'd probably get a, a quarter of your funds back. Now it's gone down to nine cents or less. Creditors themselves from a voluntary administration aren't gonna get much back, okay? So it's not good. And the perception is that it is like a liquidation, so it's it's not going to be a good good outcome or it's, or it's going to result in a glorified liquidation. So that's a disquiet I've got with that. I would say that the laissez-faire nature of this reform is something of concern because it doesn't really give guidance to the directors. If you, for example, have a game of sport, everyone's got to go out and use the same bat, bowl in a certain way, field in a certain way, everyone follows the rules and everyone has confidence about how the process is undertaken. With this reform, I don't think directors are given enough guidance about how they should approach it. There's no timeframes. It can go on for as long as as you can argue that it can go go on for. You don't need a professional advisor to step in to help help you. You don't need to document it in any particular way. You don't necessarily need to get up to date on the financial position that the company is in. So there's a lot of things that I would think any company, regardless of their size, should be required to do if they are approaching an insolvency position. And the justification behind it is because if a company goes into an insolvency position, the owners don't have any equity anymore. The company isn't worth anything. And what they're really doing is they're dipping into the creditor's funds. So that means the creditors have a interest. They're essentially the owners at that point in time. I would actually like to see something that's a bit more defined in terms of a reform. <laughs> let's talk about the prohibition on insolvent trading how is it proved and what are the penalties okay how is it proved one you have a person who's a director of a company two the company is insolvent and subsequently goes into liquidation during that time the company incurs debts so that means the directors continue to trade and there's also a basis of knowledge of of wrongdoing so that means that there are Reasonable grounds to suspect the company was insolvent at the time those debts debts were incurred. If a company director breaches this obligation, what they could be up for is they could be up for a civil penalty of up to 200 grand. They could have the liability to compensate the company or the relevant creditors for the amounts of the debts incurred. Okay, So whilst they continue to trade, they may need to pay the creditors back through the liquidator for all those debts. And there's also criminal pro- pros- prosecution potential. So that means there's a criminal offence, that if you continue to trade, that if the requisite crime can be established, that, that you could also face jail.
1: So that's the situation as it was until now. That's why so many struggling companies turn to liquidators for voluntary
0: Yes, for, for voluntary administration. Voluntary all, all, administration. Yeah. So... This really cha- changes the game. It doesn't change that pro- prohibition. It just means that if a company is at that point in time, they have another option. If they can take advantage of the safe harbour, they can continue to trade, and that duty does not apply, provided they meet all the criteria.
1: The main one is that they need to obtain advice from an appropriately qualified entity.
0: That's not not a requirement, but they can. So there are, there are some indicators which they can tick off and helps to prove their position which is that they inform themselves about the company's financial positions, they take any step that they should to prevent misconduct by officers or employees, they keep appropriate books and records they obtain advice from an appropriately qualified um, entity which is a lawyer or an accountant or an experienced consultant and they develop a plan. But no one of those elements is actually required because the strict requirement is they start to implement a, a plan. That's all. That's all.
1: I see. So all these elements that are listed, mm-hmm. where where are they coming from if they are not actually
0: required? The legislation, so there's Section 588-GA of the Corporations Act says is that for the purposes of finding that a course of action is likely likely to lead to a better outcome for the company, regard is had to whether the director does any of those things. So that means it's a positive indicator. And the problem we've discussed before is that this is a brand-new law. There's no case law. So the, the law got a royal assent and commenced in September last year. So there is no court that is interpreting this information.
1: I see. So the only requirement really for these safe harbour rules is that the director must have a reasonable expectation that this plan will result in a better outcome for the company, not necessarily for the creditors, but for the company.
0: Good point. Under Section 588 GA, there is no express requirement that the director consider the interests of the creditors at the time. It is what's in the best interest of the company itself, so the entity. What you would think, and this is my own view, is that it's a balance sheet test in that from the day they commence the plan to the day that the plan ends, a court will look at the balance sheet. What is the value of the enterprise on a balance sheet test? And if the directors can analyse the balance sheet and persuasively, sorry, develop a persuasive plan that the balance sheet is going to improve, that can be the basis on which they can seek the protection. When you get down to brass tax.
1: okay. So the only real requirement is that the directors need to believe that this plan will result in a better outcome for the. Company. That's an
0: interesting thing. No, that that's a subjective test. This is a an objective test. This is what not the man on the bus test. Not not what would, would the man on the bus think about this? What would someone bus, think. would? Pardon?
1: I think it's the Clapton bus. Clapton something.
0: bus. Yeah, we're talking. What would a um. Uh, a reasonable director in their position consider. So it's got an objective element to it so that we don't need to dive into the mind of the director. It needs to be objectively persuasive.
1: Okay, and that's all. Everything else is just an indication that an objective director would have thought that it would result in a better outcome. If they seek the advice of an appropriately qualified entity, yes, that would probably persuade a director to think of a better outcome,
0: Look, this this is just trying to not to step step on anyone's toes, in my opinion. I think that there is no way that a company can turn itself around unless they seriously consider the financial position of the company. So this is why under the law, there's a review process that's required by law two years after it's implemented. So you're going to see in, uh, at the end of 2019, you're going to see a full review of this uh, law. I think it's very open compared to, for example, the prohibition on solvent trading, which is very prescriptive and very specific. This is much more open. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a law in such an important area that is so open. And when I say open, I mean that it can be interpreted in many different ways.
1: Do you think they started so open so that they can tighten it at the right points? If they start with a tightened plan. If they start with a tightened rule, then they can't tighten it even more. But if they first start with a very laissez-faire and then see what happens and then tighten at the right spots, do you think that's why they started with such a wide net?
0: Well, the wheels of insolvency move in a very slow way. And if this is the most significant reform since 1993, then you'd think it's going to take a long time before they actually change this significantly. No, I think that this was kept very open so that There'd be less formal appointments over large enterprises in Australia so that independent directors of boards would not call in the administrator too early. So it's basically trying to change the legal position of independent directors. My answer to you is it is deliberately open. It is open so that the directors themselves don't feel the pressure of having to immediately appoint a voluntary administrator if their auditors come back to them and say, hey, we aren't going to sign off on you as a going concern, for example. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is basically future proving us for a future recession because with our current insolvency laws, once we hit a recession, a lot of companies would fall over a lot quicker than with this rule now.
0: You'd think so, yeah. Australia hasn't had a recession in 25 years, so there's an entire generation of, of working-age Australians that have never seen one. The, this reform, I think, is specifically aimed at insolvency professionals to limit their power and control and to limit the the monopoly that they have. But as to whether it's going to future-proof us from a recession, don't know. I think that as an economy yeah. internationalises, you see more complexity. Yes. So perhaps it is a way of... Um, I
1: meant I meant not so much that we weren't hit by a recession. Of course we will one day. But it, I meant more that the companies can wobble more before they fall over.
0: I think I'd agree with you on that. They can explore their options. I think that that's the one takeaway, that the, the directors that are, sorry, the companies that are approaching an insolvency position can um, explore other options, can fully explore different plans.
1: If there is a plan, then what does it look like? Because okay. there needs to be a plan, doesn't
0: it? Well, look, this this just comes down to my opinion. There's 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 no case law on this. So there's no, a court hasn't sat, sat down and actually explained what is going to be in a plan. Okay. First observation is that, that the length and sophistication of the plan should be directly related to the size and complexity of the entity that it deals with. So if it's a large enterprise, then you expect there to be a number of entities and a number of types of operations and large amounts of assets and, and employers. So you, you, you expect to be very complex. Okay, If it's a small to medium-sized enterprise, then you would expect it to be less complex. The actual length wouldn't be as long.
1: But that's you guessing now? There's no case law? The, the legislation doesn't say that?
0: It's, it's Well, it's not a guess. It's, a, it's, it's an opinion. Okay, so there's nothing specific about the length and the complexity of the plan, but it's got to be related to the size and complexity of the business itself. There is no restriction on what the end point is going to be as long as the end point or the end game is reasonably likely to put the company in a better position than immediate liquidation. So one end game could be that the company works towards um, a sale of its assets so that you'd think that liquidation fire sale would get a lower price for the assets than an orderly process where um, the assets can be sold over a period of time. So that that could be one plan. Um, Another plan could be to seek funds, to seek more investors it could be to change the pricing of the enterprise. It could be to perhaps stop a big project. So one problem a com- company may have is it's got a big project which isn't producing return and is cost- costing too too much in working cap- capital, so they could cut that project. If there's an issue with the management, they could change our management. It just depends on the problem that the company has at has the time. So they have-, they have the space and the time to write a plan and to start work on it and actually analyse what would put the company in a better position. I think it's got to be written. That's, that's the first thing. One thing directors should keep in mind is if the company does go into liquidation down the track, they may have to evidence this or they will have to evidence it. So how do you evidence it unless it's written? That's a problem. The
1: current law doesn't actually say that you need a plan, but you need a plan later on when you need to refer to the safe harbour rules.
0: Well, the current law doesn't mandate that it's a written plan. But you'd think if you're going to prove that a plan existed at a certain period of time and to, to evidence what the plan is, you'd need to have it written down. Because don't forget, this, this could result in a court case. And in a court case, it's much easier to have a written plan than to basically try and give evidence about what occurred a year or two before based upon the me- memory you've down the track. So that's why I suggest it's written. I also think that it would include cash flow projection. So That means that if the company isn't seriously looking at its cash flow and projecting how it will improve the financial position of the company, then obviously it can't be as serious about it. That would be my view. Next thing is it should be a secret plan. So if it's disclosed, then you'd think that would have a very, sorry, an adverse effect on the company's opposition because yeah. all, all the employees could leave or yeah, the suppliers could work out the door.
1: And the suppliers don't...
0: That's right. There was a mining company at the end of last year that made a decision to disclose its safe harbour plan or the existence of the safe harbour plan to the ASX as part of its continuous disclosure obligations. And that caused a big blow up in the industry. The ASX then released policy whereby they, they clarified that a company doesn't need to disclose it to the ASX. So that means that... That's an
1: important ruling.
0: It is a very... Well, it's a policy. So that's an important development. So even if a company is on the ASX, they don't need to continuously disclose the existence of the safe harbour. But you would think it should be kept confidentially between the board and between its advisors and anyone who's trying trying to execute it. There's only one best practice on the elements of a plan that I can refer to. So the Turnaround Management Association has a a best practice, which you can find on their website.
1: Is that a well-known association? Because I had to look I had to look for a long time what TMA means.
0: It's relatively well known. In terms of the insolvency industry, it's 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 getting bigger.
1: So anybody in the insolvency industry would know of the TMA? Yes,
0: they would. Yes, yes, they would. Okay, so the best practice they have put forward is that the first stage of the safe harbour should be an assessment of the solvency position of the company. The second stage for the company to resolve to enter the safe harbour. Third stage, that the turnaround planning be undertaken. Then the implementation and uh, the monitoring of the safe harbour and then getting out of the safe harbour. And as I said, if you go onto their website, you'll be able to see the best practice that they...
1: There's a lot of detail.
0: There is a lot lot of detail. Mm.
1: So these five steps, I think it was, I quickly said, but they break them up in a lot more
0: detail. Yeah, they break up the evidence and the timing and the deliverables, a whole whole bunch of things. There's no strict requirement at law that you run through that process, but from, from my research, that is the only best practice that makes sense that I've found. Yeah. Okay, the next issue is when does the safe harbor end? Because unlike voluntary administration, there is no set time in which it ends. So that means it can continue. So how could it end? One, if the directors actually fail to take action within a reasonable time. So that means they've actually got to work on the plan and then implement it. So they could lose that protection. Next is if the directors cease to take the course of action. So that means they develop a plan and they've got it written and they just don't do it. The next if the course of action ceases to be likely to lead to the outcome that, that they think it's going to lead to?
1: Yeah, it no longer looks like it's going to be a better outcome.
0: That's exactly right. So this, is, But look, this gets into almost the stage of trying to second guess what a court will do years down the track. So this is something very hard to advise our directors on about how quickly they need to undertake action, how they could lose it, because it really depends upon a retrospective um, analysis. I think that that if you're a professional advisor, you should tell your clients to get their skates on. Don't muck around with this thing. Don't leave it open to risk down the track. That would involve quickly analysing the financial position of the company, uh, getting professional advice, and then undertaking action. And if you don't do it within a quick period of time, whatever quick means, that you leave yourself open to being found not to be in the safe harbour down the track. (music)
1: Apart from the qualified restructuring advisor, was there anything else that didn't get included in the safe harbour that the industry expected to
0: come in? Okay, well, there were lots of things. Okay, one of the main issues is that with this industry, other than the Productivity Commission, all of the bodies that are involved in making our submissions and arguing the toss about reform are bodies that are self-interested. So the Law Society obviously acts for our solicitors, our reader acts for insolvency practitioners, Australian Institute of Company Directors acts for our directors, Okay, so one thing that didn't get included was the Australian Institute of Company Directors has proposed an honest and reasonable director defence for years, which is that if a director is able to show that they were honest and diligent, that they shouldn't be liable under the prohibition. Okay, that didn't get included. Next thing is the Productivity Commission recommended that there be a registered restructuring advisor. Basically require that all companies that are trying to utilise the Safe Harbour need to go to someone who has experience? At least five years experience. That didn't get followed. Okay. The Productivity Commission re- recommended that there be a fixed process of the safe hub. It lasts for a certain period of time. Books and records are analysed by the advisor, etc. That didn't get followed. There's no fixed process. This is much more an open process. A reader recommended that there be a ban on pre-pack sales. That means that companies, if they're insolvent, be banned from tra- transferring their assets to other entities. That didn't get followed.
1: That would be a big
0: thing. That would stop phoenixing. That could stop it or it would just create another cause, cause of action to sue based upon an additional claim that mightn't be enforced. It may also penalise legitimate transfers as well. Next thing that a rhetoric recommended was a restriction on advice in the safe harbour being provided only by registered liquidators and that I didn't get followed. ARITA is the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association. So. ARITA, A-R-I-T-A. It used to be called the IPA, the Insolvency Practitioners Association. I see. And I think because the the TMA, the Turnaround Management Association, was able to be introduced to Australia and grow very uh, successfully, that ARITA decided that they had to broaden their base and they had to compete with them. So they changed, changed their name.
1: I see. So, what's the relationship between TMA and uh, Arita? So, TMA actually came from overseas. I
0: think. I think they're enemies. <laughs> Just put it that way, they're competing industries. They don't groups. like each other. They don't like like each other. They're competing industries.
1: So, where where does TMA come from? You said inter- they introduced. It's an American. Australia.
0: It's an American association. Oh, I see. Okay. It's 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 all around the world.
1: I see, and that's also how it came that you wrote an article for the American bankruptcy.
0: No, I I, I joined joined it. I joined I it, yeah.
1: But I was surprised to see that because why would Americans be interested in Australia's safe harbour routes?
0: Because I'm on a, an international committee and it's made up of and ways from it, all around the world.
1: I see. And I guess it's if you have American companies doing business in Australia, then, of course, they want to know about the safe harbour routes in Australia. American
0: subsidiaries, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, they'd be very concerned about it. Yeah.
1: Okay, so TMA is an American association. Yep. And then ARITA is an, an Australian association. I'm surprised that an American association decided to enter Australia. You know, to start. It's looking.
0: also it's also bigger than ARIA.
1: Yeah,
0: it's uh, bigger now, and it's and, and it's got a, a bigger base.
1: And they're basically a global association because creditors don't stop at the border. Or
0: banks, because in, banks, yeah, yeah stop or them.
1: banks, yeah, yeah. because of insolvency, insolvency creditors, etc. It's all global, so you know, there's well, room for a global association.
0: Well, the direction of the market is cross-border border Stuff, so a company might be Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific and America, and so if it goes broke, then there is going to be stuff going on all over the world. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's that's the direction of the market.
1: Whereas Arita is just Australian.
0: That's exactly right. One hundred percent Australian. <laughs> Another thing that didn't get followed was that there is no moratorium on wind up applications or appointments of receivers during the safe harbor. So that means that if a company is going through its informal process. That there's nothing to stop a creditor or someone who's owed funds or has or present after acquired security interest. There's nothing to stop them from appointing a receiver or making an application to wind up. So, they, so the creditors can still run to court. So unlike Chapter Eleven in the US, there is no prohibition on those types of claims. Sorry, no, no uh, moratorium. And the last thing is the time frame. There's no express restriction on how long a safe harbor can go for.
1: Coming back to the lack of moratorium for creditors, does that happen a lot that the creditors go to the court to request liquidation of the company?
0: It does.
1: Does it happen more than voluntary administration?
0: It happens less than voluntary administration for companies that actually have assets. What you find is if a company's wound up and the main creditor that winds up companies in Australia is the ATO, by the time the ATO goes to court, and makes an application and actually obtains an order that the company's ceased to trade; it's closed down. It could be assetless. Whereas a voluntary administration, if a voluntary administrator is appointed, the company may have a going concern. Sorry, may trade, uh, may have assets. The ATO applications for wind, wind up tend to be tend tend to be assetless and tend to not produce a return. Mm. So, by the time
1: the ATO requests liquidation It's too late anyway. All the assets are gone.
0: You'd you think so, yeah. If there is an application to wind up, then that will potentially force the directors to seriously consider a voluntary administration because they won't have any protection. That may speed up the process that is undertaken.
1: Whereas now they have the safe harbour, so even if a creditor applies for liquidation, they still have the safe harbour
0: to protect them so they can find this. So, okay, One thing that they could have implemented which they didn't implement is that if a creditor, say the ATO, applies to one upper company, if the company can go to court and demonstrate they're in a safe harbour protection, that they could apply for an adjournment of the application for six months to give them an extra six six months to try and restructure. That's one thing they could could have. But they didn't. But they did.
1: So the the ultimate aim of this law is to reduce the number of formal appointments, meaning to reduce the number of voluntary administration.
0: No, it's not. That's my own opinion. So what I would say is this, is that the ultimate way to analyse whether this is successful is does it actually result in less administrations and liquidations in Australia? Because that would mean that there's less companies that are being put to the sword and it means that, assets are being dealt with, and there's restructures that don't require third-party interference. That's my test.
1: In an article you wrote for the legal update, you said that we come from the strictest insolvency trading prohibition in the developed world. Have you gone from the strictest to the least strict?
0: That was a, a comment that was made by the I think the Chief Justice of the Western Australian Supreme Court at a a conference a few years ago, he, he said that Australia had the strictest insolvent trading regime in the developed world. Have we gone to the less strict? I think the answer is no, and that's because of the qualifications that have been put into this law. And the emphasis that it puts on directors to actually take action. It puts the onus or it puts the obligation upon them firmly, individually that they need to sit down and they need to have a big think about the company and develop a plan. So it, it doesn't create the loosest regime in the world, but it does open up the space of, a, of an informal restructure to be undertaken, which is something new in Australia because uh, the direction of policy before this has been to require that a insolvency practitioner steps in and takes the reins.
1: What's the difference between liquidation and voluntary administration?
0: Okay. So liquidation is where a liquidator, so the person appointed over the company, uh, shuts it down and they sell all the assets and they liquidate and they wind up all of its operations. Okay, The directors can appoint the liquidator or a court can. Mm -hmm. Voluntary administration is where the directors appoint a voluntary administrator to take over the affairs of the company to try and turn it around. Mm -hmm. So it's a formal process where the market is informed that it is undertaken and there's a set time period of, say, five weeks or so between when it commences and when it ends. There's a compromise that may be put by the directors to seek the agreement or to basically mandate through the vote, the agreement of the creditors to compromise on their claims.
1: So in theory, the voluntary administration should allow the rescue of the company. But in practice, it turns out that voluntary administrator almost always then pushes the company into liquidation. That's right. Because in a voluntary administration, it's no longer the directors who are in charge, but the voluntary administrator. experience shows that the moment you put a company into a third party's hands, being the voluntary administrator, they won't bother with their rescue. They well, would just turn around and liquidate the thing.
0: Maybe. But, look, the, it's it's more the perception of the market is that they're the same, is that they're going to lead to no one being paid and the enterprise being shut, shut down. So the perception of the market based upon its experience is that if a company goes into voluntary administration, it's going to lead to a bad outcome, the same as a liquidation. Although under the law, there is this process that can be undertaken to restructure the enterprise.
1: I see. So the difference between a voluntary administration and now the new safe harbour rules are two. One is the new safe harbour rules keep it secret, whereas the voluntary administration is public. And second, the new safe harbour rules keep the company in the hands of the directors, whereas the voluntary administration puts it into the hands of the voluntary administrator.
0: That's exactly right. The safe harbour is a way of helping the company to try and informally restructure its affairs without having to air the dirty laundry through the voluntary administration process, and that's a completely new reform for Australia. A voluntary administrator can be appointed by a secured creditor.
1: But then it's no longer voluntary.
0: That's right. Or or they can be appointed by, by the directors. A liquidator can be appointed by court, they can be appointed by the directors, and the court process is one that's initiated by the creditors themselves. So the creditors don't have a right to appoint one directly, but they can apply to court to have a liquidator appointed. A voluntary administrator cannot be appointed by court.
1: I see. So there's only voluntary administration and there's liquidation. That's right. And the creditors can apply to the court to start the liquidation. But there's no such thing as an involuntary administration that the no. creditors can start.
0: No. I see. Okay. No. I, I think it's just the words being juxtaposed.
1: You mentioned earlier this word, pre sales. What is a pre-pact sale?
0: Okay, this is an area of debate in the insolvency industry today. So... In terms of Phoenix fin- Activity, that's where the assets of the company are transferred for inadequate consideration. The opposite of that is a prepack insolvency arrangement, which is big in the UK but isn't used very much here. And what that is is, is where a company sits down and transfers through, say, a seller business agreement or an asset sale agreement, its assets or specific assets to another company that pays for those assets. And it's, it's a little bit of a grey area but it's another way of reserving parts of an enterprise or particular assets and also doing it in a legal way so that any li- liquidator that's appointed doesn't have a cause of action against the company that the assets are transferred to or its sub-directors. Now, the thing is this, it's, there, it's, it's not referred to anywhere in the Corporations Act. It's not illegal. It's not advocated by any specific um, industry group, so you're not going to find the Law Society or reader, or any other industry group advocated, but it's there and it's an option. It's a way to preserve assets and preserve our value without having to go through a formal insolvency process through a voluntary administration. It, it is a bit more of a risky transaction than an administration, but it's something that directors can look at to preserve parts of an enterprise or to, to deal with assets and to document it and make it trans- transparent so that they're not doing anything illegal.
1: The introduction of voluntary administration in 1993 was the last big change. <laughs> until, until now, until we have the safe rules, what did we have before the introduction of voluntary administration?
0: Okay, well, the, the policy issue that was identified was that too many companies were putting themselves into liquidation and that creditors were able to to liquidate too too early. So the voluntary administration process means that the creditors aren't able to go to court and to liquidate if there's a voluntary administration, a valid voluntary administration process on foot. So that wasn't a path that was created. And at that time, Australia was um, ahead of the world in terms of this process, and the voluntary administration regime was adopted by the UK after us.
1: So that means the voluntary administration actually was the first attempt of creating a rescue culture in Australia. Yes, it was. To stop creditors from applying for liquidation but to allow directors to turn the company around. It's just that it didn't go far enough and hence didn't implement the rescue culture that
0: was... Well, there, there was a, a comprehensive report called the Harm Report which was released in 1988 and the, the creation... It, it, put forward voluntary administration. Now, at the time, that 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 was a pretty big change. So in terms of looking at it retrospectively, over the last 25 years or so, voluntary administration has had uh, diminishing returns and is seen by the market as being the same as liquidation. So I don't think that could have been predicted. So when it was implemented, I don't think before it was implemented, you could have seen ahead and predicted that it would it would have a diminishing returns over time and that it would have a negative perception in the market such that its effectiveness is significantly reduced.
1: Welcome back. So hopefully these new safe harbour rules will create a rescue culture in Australia for insolvent companies. Over the next four episodes, Paul McIneros of Cleary Hall in Brisbane will talk to you about trust, starting with revocable trust and family trust elections, and then leading into the taxation of trusts and the streaming of trust income. So the next episode will be about revocable trusts. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.